book of Job 42, verse 7 to 17. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my, Job, my, my servant Job has. So now, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for your souls. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and the Sephra the Nemethite did what the Lord told him, told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job has prayed for his friends, the Lord restores his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, and a 1,000 yoke of oxen, and a 1,000 donkeys. And he also has seven sons and three daughters. The first daughters he named Jemimai, the second Kassai, and the third Karen Habak. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died, an old man and four of years. This is the word of the Lord. Our second reading is James 5, 7 to 11, and that's on page 1045 of the Church Bibles. Be patient, then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's is coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have, you have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, everyone. Please turn back in your Bibles to Job chapter 42. I think it's on page 462. If you haven't met, my name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'll be concluding our series in the book of Job, uh, which has been quite timely for us as a church and personally very 
comforting and confronting at the same time. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to your word this evening uh, with reverence and awe at you, the almighty God. And we long, Father, for you to speak to us. We need to hear your voice as we're in this valley. And we pray, Lord, that as your word goes out, the spirit would take it, it would not return to you empty, and that you would feed and nourish us and comfort us and sustain us. And we ask that for Jesus' sake. Friends, there's always hope in the valley. There's always, always, always hope in whatever valley you are going through. Uh, No matter how deep the pain, no matter how deep the sadness, there's always hope. No matter how deep the despair or the discouragement, there is always, always hope. And I love that word hope because it's a Christian word. It's a word about confidence, a word about security, a word about how good God is even in the midst of the darkest, darkest valley. There are so many Christian books on suffering and it's amazing how many of them use the word hope in the title. Uh, Here's just three of them. Uh, Hope Beyond Cure by Dave MacDonald. Holding On to Hope by Nancy Guthrie. Hope when it hurts. Uh, Dave McDonald is a pastor down in Canberra. He was diagnosed with lung cancer a few years ago. And in his book, Hope Beyond Cures, he says, I still have hope in Jesus, even if God chooses not to cure me. I've still got hope in the resurrection, even if I'm not cured in the here and now. I've still got hope that God is still good and God is still sovereign and God is still in control and God is still with me, even if he chooses not to cure me. Nancy Guthrie wrote that book, Holding On To Hope. Hope was the name of her daughter who died as a baby. And in that book, she talks about the resurrection hope and the the hope of seeing hope again and the hope of seeing her son again that utterly, utterly transforms her grief. Hope when it hurts. Talks about a God who can bring purpose to your suffering and relief in your pain. I want to ask you, do you have this hope? I, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what valleys the Lord will take you through, but do you have this certain, confident, secure hope in God? Charles Spurgeon said this, God is too good to be unkind and too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. Love that quote. There are times in life when you cannot trace God's hand. You don't know what he's doing or why he's doing it. And at those times, you must talk to yourself. Not a sign of madness. Talk to yourself. Tell yourself truth about God. God, you are still good and you are not unkind. And God, you are still wise and you cannot be mistaken. And God, I don't understand it, but you do. I can't trace your hand, but I will trust your heart. That's the basis of our hope. A God who is good, a God who is sovereign, a God who is still kind, a God who's not mistaken. And I have to say that in this season our church is going through, we are in the valley and we've got to hold on to hope, haven't we? 
Last Monday, I had the awful job, but the privilege of conducting a, a funeral for a stillborn child. You've got to hold on to hope at those moments. This Wednesday, I'll conduct the funeral here for Mark Fairfall. And then we're going to bury Vicky Swan as well this week. Where do you turn to in those times of trial? Where do you turn to when you're so overwhelmed with grief and with heartache? You turn to a God where you can't trace his hand, but you can trust his heart. I don't know who your examples of hope are. Who are the people in your life who have held on to hope through the darkest of days? For me, Pat and Sharon Collins are a great example. Pat was the pastor of Neutral Bay, of, of Lavender Bay, rather. Uh, his story is this, that when they left Bible college, they decided to follow the laws leading to northern New South Wales to pastor in country parishes. Just a few months after they arrived, they gave birth to their first child who was stillborn. And they kept on trusting the Lord. So I don't understand this, God, but we'll trust you. We'll keep serving you. But that parish was awful to him. They were oppressive. They attacked him. But they kept on trusting the Lord and preaching the gospel. And they returned to Sydney and they, they watched two of their sons walk away from the Lord. But they kept on trusting in God's hand and trusting his heart. And they came to Lavender Bay and... Sharon was diagnosed with cancer, first with bowel cancer and then with stomach cancer. And they thought they would retire early to enjoy a few last years together, but the Lord took her, took her home to be with him. And I spoke to Pat this week and he said that Sharon was a great example of a woman who just kept on trusting God, holding on to that hope. Who are your examples of people who have held on to hope? I think Job is a great example. In the New Testament, he's held up an example for us. James chapter 5, 11, we just read it. As you know, we count blessed those who have persevered, those who have pressed on in their faith, those who have kept on holding on to the hope of Jesus. And Job was one of those men. You've heard about Job's perseverance, how he was steadfast in his faith, despite what the Lord took him through. And we've seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. I don't think I would have chosen those two words to describe God's hand in this book, would you? I might have said the Lord is powerful or the Lord is just or the Lord is mighty or maybe even say the Lord is a bit harsh. But to describe the Lord as full of compassion and full of mercy... I don't know why this book ends like it does. Now, if you've been with us for the whole series, Job is this upright, blameless man who loves God and has everything taken away, his family, his property, his possessions, his health. And these three miserable comforters who come to him and say, Job, you're suffering because you've sinned. And you're thinking, shut up. And then Job cries out to the Lord, why? Why are you doing this, God? And then God speaks through Elihu and says, actually there's a purpose in your suffering. God is refining you through your suffering. 
And then the, the climax, I think, comes in chapters 38 to 42, where God says to Job, Job, were you there when I created the earth? Do you know everything, Job? Because I am God and you are not. And I think that's the perfect end to Job, don't you? God is God and you are not. So shut up and humble yourself before an almighty God. I'd love Job to end there, but it doesn't. Instead, you've got this sugary Hollywood ending. You know, Job's three friends are rebuked, and Job prays, and the three friends are forgiven, and Job is restored, and he gets even more than he has before, and he lives a long life, and they all lived happily ever after. Is that the moral of Job? Keep trusting God, and it will all come good in the end. Is that, is that what Job's about? Hang in there, trust God, and you'll be better off in the long run. God will bless you with even more when you've suffered lots. Is that what this book is about? Please, please, please don't, don't read Job like that. And please don't listen to those awful preachers and teachers who tell you if you just trust God more, then he will give you more stuff. This book is not about getting more from God. This book is about knowing God better. It's about persevering. It's about hanging in there. It's about keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus and living with hope, holding on to hope in the valley. Two things to teach tonight. Here's the first one. We are so loved by God. We are so deeply, profoundly loved by God. Do you know that? Do you know how much God really loves you? And when you read verses like, you know, how great the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that's what we are. Do you believe that? Do you know that you are deeply, deeply loved by God and accepted by God? Because that's at the heart of this book. Job longs to know that he's loved by God. Job just wants to know that he's okay with God, that God hasn't forgotten him, that God isn't angry with him. He just wants to know that he's got a father in heaven who knows him and holds on to him and loves him. And that's how the book ends. Job knows he's loved by God. See that in verse seven, after the Lord has said these things to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, that is the oldest of those three friends, I'm angry with you and with your two friends because you haven't spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. That's a shocking verse, isn't it? It's shocking in so many ways because the three friends thought they'd spoken rightly and God said they hadn't. And the three friends thought that this wicked man Job had got it all wrong, but but God says he's got it right. And we sit here and we've read the whole book and we've said, how can God say that God has spoken the truth? That Job has spoken the truth, rather. Because Job says some pretty confronting things about God, doesn't he? We've just heard Job say, where are you, God, and why are you not there? And God, that's not fair. And God says in this verse that Job spoke the truth about him. And I find that incredibly comforting. What God is saying is that if you're a child of God, it is okay to bring your perplexities to God. If you know you're loved by God, it's okay to ask why. It's okay to say, God, what are you doing? 
It's okay to know that God is all-powerful, but you just don't understand his ways. That's okay. And you see what title he gives Job? It comes three times in this passage. Verse 7, my servant Job. Verse 8, my servant Job. Verse 8 again, the last few words, my servant Job. It's a beautiful title. It's a, it's a title of love. It's a title of covenant relationship. My servant, my beloved one, Job. Do you know who in the Bible is called my servant? Abraham's called my servant. Moses is called my servant. David is called my servant. Elijah's called my servant. Job is called my servant. And who else is called my servant? Just one more person. Jesus. It's a title of dignity. It's a title of love. My servant, my chosen one, the one that I know, the one I care for, the one I loved. And and God loved Job enough. Listen carefully. God loved Job enough to humble him, to break him, to bring him to that point of repentance. Job needed to realize that he was not God He didn't understand everything. He needed to realize that he was proud. He was self-sufficient. He needed to say, I am unworthy. That's the loving hand of God to do that. It's a mark of compassion. God loves us enough to humble us. God loved these three friends enough to humble them. God crushed their pride and their theology. It was all wrong. What did it take for God to restore these three friends. See that in verse 8? God tells these friends to take a sacrifice, to take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering. To know you're accepted by God, it always requires a sacrifice. And my servant Job will pray for you. To, To know you're accepted by God always requires someone to mediate on your behalf. And I will accept Job's prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. That's what we need. We need God to not deal with us according to our sins. But for that to happen, we need sacrifice and we need a mediator. And do you spot the irony here? That Job is going to act as the priest, as the mediator for his three friends. And Job is going to pray for his three friends. And God accepts them. Verse 9, the Lord accepted Job's prayer. God loves Job. God loved these friends and God loves you. I said again, God loves you. How do you know that God loves you? How do you know you're acceptable to God? Well, in many ways, Job is the forerunner for Jesus, isn't he? Just as Job acted as a priest as they brought these sacrifices, so Jesus is the sacrifice. And just as Job prayed on behalf of his friends as a mediator, Jesus mediates for us so that God will not deal with us according to our folly and our sins. And if you're here tonight and you said, yeah, I believe that, I believe that Jesus is the sacrifice, I believe that Jesus is my mediator, then God does not act according to your folly. Instead, he wipes your slate clean 
And he says, you're my child, you're my son, you're my daughter, you're my servant. And I love you. See, God often uses suffering to humble us. And that is a mark of his love. I hear it so often, you know, it's when everything was stripped away that, that, that God actually reminded me that he was there. When my health was taken, I realized how arrogant and selfish I was and I had taken God for granted. When that relationship broke down, I came back to the Lord. I need to ask you, has God done that for you? Has God broken you and God humbled you to the point where you've realized that you are not God and that you need Jesus? When was that? Uh, For me personally, God had to break my intellectual arrogance. I thought I had all the answers for life. And God had to break my pride because I thought I was in control of everything. And God did shatter me. He did break me. Totally broke me about 28 years ago. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. What do you pray for friends and family who don't yet know Jesus? What do you pray for them? They'll have a happy life or be successful. Please don't pray they'll be successful. Awful prayer. Success always leads to pride and pride always leads to arrogance and arrogance leads to self-sufficiency and they don't need God. Would you pray that God would humble them? God might break them so they realize that they need Jesus. Bold prayer to pray. See, God loved Job enough to humble him and God loves us enough to humble us. And God loved Job enough to, to warn him and to warn us that we're not exempt from harm, we're not exempt from suffering. We're not exempt from the attacks of Satan, are we? Have you understood why Job is suffering? Why is Job suffering for this whole book? It is not because of a particular sin. He is suffering because he is a good, upright man. He's suffering because he loves God. Uh, Many people have talked to me about this series on Job and some people have said, I didn't want to come. But I came and I've actually been amazed at how big God is and how small I am. And a number of people said to me, I've been amazed that I haven't understood really that I'm living in this world of spiritual attack and a spiritual battle and the spiritual hostility. That's a big thing in Job. God loves us enough to remind us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but in a spiritual battle against the spiritual realm and the devil, Satan, is roaring around like a prowling lion looking for Christians to devour. Christopher Ashe is very helpful. He says this. It's not so much that Job is on the battlefield, but Job is the battlefield. And if you're here tonight as a Christian, you are the battlefield. Satan is longing to, to, to grab hold of you and cause you to wander away from God. Remember his two weapons, he's got pleasure, he gives you more and more and more stuff so you don't think you don't need God or he gives you pain so you question whether God loves you. I love what Jesus says in Luke 22. He says this, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I prayed for you, Simon, 
that your faith may not fail. And it struck me this week, why didn't Jesus pray that Satan would not sift Simon? He doesn't pray that. No, he prays that Simon's faith would not fail as he is sifted. And I find that so encouraging that Jesus is praying for us that our faith would not fail, that we'd hold on to hope, we'd wake on every day saying, thank you, Jesus, I'm loved by you, I'm known by you, but please, Lord, today, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. The battle is real. Do you know you're loved by God? That's my first point, you are loved by God. And secondly, you are blessed by God. That's how this book ends, with extravagant blessings, abundance blessings. Job hasn't got all the answers he wants. He's still lives in pain, but he's abundantly blessed by God, and so are we. Verse 10, after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes, and he gave him twice as much as he had before. I find verse 11 an odd verse. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before, all his family and friends who ignored him for months and years whilst he was on the ash heap, they suddenly came back once he'd been restored and ate his food with him in his house. Great friends they are. And they comforted and they consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him. Verse 12, the Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life, he abundantly blessed it. He doubled everything. He had 4,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 donkeys, seven sons, three daughters, beautiful daughters, more beautiful than any woman in the land at that time. And Job lived 140 years. That's twice the normal uh, three score years and ten. He saw his kids and their kids, the fourth generation. What a blessing that is. important points here. Please, please know that, that God's blessings are not the reason why Job worships. It is not Job is, is worshipping his God because God has given him so much stuff. That was Satan's accusation back in chapter 1. He only worships you because of all the stuff you give him. In verse 10, after Job has prayed, after he's been restored, after he's right with God, then God blesses him. The blessings follow the relationship. And these blessings are not a reward for worship. It's not a, well done, Job, you've stood the test, you've persevered, good on you, Job, and now I'll give you all this stuff. Like that awful parenting where you reward your kids for their good behaviour by giving them all that truckloads of stuff. And please don't read these verses as a kind of compensation, replacement theology. That's horrendous. Yes, he's lost everything, but God has replaced it. Please don't think that 10 more kids erase the pain or that deep heartache at the loss of his first 10 kids. Now these blessings are not a sign or not the reason why he worships. They're not the reward for his worship. They're not the replacement. Now these blessings are purely a sign of God's grace and God's kindness and God's compassion and God's mercy. God did not have to give Job anything, but he chose to. Why? Because he loves us. I hope you realize that all the blessings that God lavishes on you every minute of every day. But I fear we don't. I fear we live in this 
culture of entitlement or expectation. And many of us sit here tonight and we've got a roof over our head and we've got clothes on our back and we've got food in our fridge and we've got money in the bank and we are more blessed than 90% of the world population today. But we just take that for granted. Uh, G.K. Chesterton said this, you say grace before meals, but I say grace before the concert and before the opera. I say grace before the play and the pantomime. I say grace before I I open a book. I say grace before sketching and painting and swimming and fencing and boxing. I say grace before I go for a walk or I play or I dance. I say grace before I dip the pen in the ink. See, there's a man who doesn't take things for granted but sees every little thing from the hand of a, a gracious God who blesses us richly. Do you ever stop and say thank you? Do you ever stop and say thank you for the blessings that God has put in your life? Now, God does not promise you a, a bigger family or a larger house as a reward for your faithfulness, but he does bless you in the little things day by day by day. But what has God promised you? What are the blessings that God has guaranteed you? I'll read from the communion service, from the prayer book. We praise and thank you, Heavenly Father, for every spiritual blessing we have in Jesus Christ our Lord, in whom we have the forgiveness of our sins and the gift of your spirit and the the hope of sharing in your glory. Ephesians 1, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's the the promise that you have everything you need in Jesus. You are chosen, you're elected, you're adopted, you're loved, you're forgiven. Tim Keller says this, have you heard God's blessing in your inmost being? Are the words, you're my beloved child in whom I delight, an endless source of joy and strength and blessing in your life? Have you sensed the blessing that God gives you through the Holy Spirit, that God speaks to you through his word? All these blessings that we just take for granted. We are blessed now. And we will be blessed in eternity. Here's the important bit. When was Job blessed? And the answer is at the end. Just stick with me just for a couple of minutes. This is so beautiful and so important. Verse 10. The Lord restored his fortunes and gave Job twice. Look at that word, twice as much as he had before. And then the mathematician in me gets a bit confused. Because verse 12 says he has twice as many sheep, 14,000, and twice as many camels, 6,000, and twice as many oxen, 1,000 oxen, and twice as many donkeys, 1,000 donkeys. But he doesn't have twice as many kids. He had seven sons and he had three daughters and God gives him seven more sons and three more daughters. So why didn't God give him 14 sons and six daughters? And the answer is what? He's still got seven sons and three daughters. But they're in glory. 
And that's his resurrection hope, isn't it? He doesn't need 14 sons and six more daughters because he's got seven sons and three daughters in glory. And that eternal blessing, that eternal hope that those who have been taken from us in this world who are in Christ, we will see again. That transforms everything, you know. As I've sat with so many people grieving this last couple of weeks, the resurrection hope and the promise of eternal blessings and eternal inheritance and eternal glory, it just changes everything. God doesn't promise all these blessings in the here and now. But he does promise us that he loves us, that he holds on to us, and he will take us to glory. And just like the daughters of Job, who very strangely for that culture were given a share of the inheritance, so will we, with our restored bodies and our restored minds. And that's our hope. That is our hope, isn't it? On that day when my strength is failing, the end draws near, my time has come. Still my soul will sing your praise and ending 10,000 years and then forevermore. So I need to ask you again, do you know that you're loved by God? Do you know loved by God? And do you know you're blessed by the Lord? That you're blessed by God. When you hold to those two truths, you can say this. When I cannot trace his hand, I can still trust his heart. I can still trust his heart.